Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Now, welcome back to another WKRP cast. We got a fun one today. Let's get right into. <laughs> Donna, what is it today? Today we're talking about Tornado. The air date was the 5th of February, 1979, written by Hugh Wilson and Blake Hunter. The story editors were Tom Chihak, Bill Dial, Blake Hunter, and Emily Marshall. And it was directed by Will McKenzie. You think he was a hoser? Oh, yeah, I got Odie. He's one of the brothers, Bob and Doug. And yeah. Hey, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. The staff at WKRP finds themselves in danger when Herb unplugs a teleprinter just as it's receiving a local tornado warning. And in this episode, there's no Venus and no Bailey. All right. We're making fun of Will, but this is kind of an auspicious episode for Mr. McKenzie. This is his very first. And Will McKenzie will go on to be the second most influential director in the entire series. Mm -hmm. He's going to direct a total of 16 WKRP episodes, which makes him number two. And he's got quite a bit of directing cred. He did uh, 36 episodes of Family Ties. He was also involved with Scrubs, Moonlighting. He also does a little bit of acting and some voiceover work. Busy guy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Number one on that list is Rod Daniel. And Rod is doing 24 episodes, so he's got eight more than Will. And then Asad Kalata getting in at number three with 15 episodes. So those right are Right under, right yeah, under Will. Just Wills. barely. Those are our key directors, though, throughout the series. All right, you ready to get into it? We start out in the bullpen. Les is at his desk, and he's typing feverishly on this really old manual typewriter. And right up front. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Left pointer finger. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Les walks over to the teleprinter and he picks up a single piece of paper, like a piece of copy paper. Yeah, it just looks like something out of the typewriter. And To not... read the latest news. And what did you say about that? Well, not exactly how the paper would come off of that thing. Those normally had a roll in there, a spool of paper that it fed. Mm-hmm. And that plastic thing that's below the printout area usually was serrated. And you could just grab that and rip a piece off. So oh, it... like scotch tape. Yeah, yeah. just exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly like scotch tape the size of a piece 
piece of paper. So <laughs> it it didn't come off exactly as like a letter size piece of paper the way Les came over and kind of just lifted it off of there. And also, if you notice as he lifts that off of there, there's another one underneath there, just sitting waiting for us to see later. Right. Herb walks in and right away. Herb Darling, fashion alert. The Herb's wearing salmon-colored pants and jacket that match with a peach-colored shirt and a reddish-brownish tie. I couldn't tell if he had a belt on or not, but I think I think the those are the pants with the wide waistband, no belt loops. All right, gang, and soak it up. This episode happens in one day, so this is it, our only Herb Tarlick fashion alert. Since we had three of them in the contest, nobody could win. We kind of got a little spoiled there. A lot of a lot of fashion alerts. Hey, I did want to mention something. Uh, we were talking about Les picking up that piece of paper, and Herb asked him what the news is. Yes. And Les says, Billy Carter threw up on Prince Sihanouk. <laughs> we checked out both Billy Carter and uh, Prince Sihanouk. Billy Carter is the younger brother, of course, to President Jimmy Carter, and kind of an embarrassment to President Carter. Uh, Billy loved his beer, and uh, he did spend a little bit of time in rehab. President Carter even admitted, he said that he spent a lot of his time defending Billy to the press instead of explaining his foreign policy and domestic policies to the news media. Yeah, Billy was quite the sideshow. I I remember a little bit of that. It was kind of before I was very interested in politics, but boy, I remember Billy. He was almost a cartoon character, so he appealed to me. Um, (laughs) Now... Now, something that I always thought, and when Les says this, that Billy Carter threw up on Prince Sihanouk, I always thought there was an incident where Billy Carter threw up on we somebody. We could not find it. If it happened, I maybe it was just the jokes about it possibly happening that I heard and thought it really happened, but we couldn't find anything indicating that Billy really threw up on anybody. But it wouldn't surprise me because he was the drinker. Quite well, the drinker. He also was very definitely cited for public urination near a presidential event. So it's not outside the realm yes. of possibility that Billy would pull something like this. So he was on an airport runway in full view of the press <laughs> and dignitaries. And when you got to go, you got to go. <laughs> yes. A proud, proud time for our country. Now, Prince Sihanouk, who Les also mentions, was in the news that month. Very, very topical at the time. The prince had twice been king of Cambodia. Uh, he was also uh, prime minister and head of state and president and a whole bunch of other titles because the government that he was in charge of was really mercurial. And you never knew who really was running the place. But in that month, right then, he had been released from the Khmer Rouge and had been sent to New York to serve at the UN. So he was all over the headlines, a big deal at that time, and uh, WKRP made sure to get him into one of Les's headlines. <laughs> Herb walks through the walls of Les's office, and Les has to remind him to use the door. Now, you notice Herb poured himself a cup of coffee over there, and they've got a coffee maker uh, when you walk in those main doors from our angle right to the left there, it looks like they've got a coffee machine set up. Very definitely a part of a radio station. It's as important as the transmitter. Having Just that, ask oh, Johnny. Definitely. Got to have that coffee pot there. Herb pours himself a cup of coffee, and he is carrying an Arkansas Razorback mug because Mr. Frank Bonner is from Little Rock, Arkansas. Right. A we favorite son. Up. 
Yeah, favorite son of Arkansas. Les has a report on what to do in case of an enemy attack in Cincinnati. Right. <laughs> he's been working quite a long time on this, and he's very proud of it. Yeah, so Herb's a little worried about an attack from the north. Who's going to attack us, Dayton? Should Dayton <laughs> decide to attack Cincinnati? They've got about an hour on I-75 coming south, but it sounds like Herb is ready to marshal the troops and take them on. If they come down here, we'll kick their butts. <laughs> Les tells Herb about how civil defense in this country has become a joke. (laughs) Les is very serious. This is is serious to him. It it is, but Les, it feels like sometimes, has just been time warped in from 1959. You know, he's right there... Uh, you'd think the bomb had just dropped, you know, <laughs> the way Les has uh, taken this on. He is at the height of the Cold War. He's ready to fight the godless commies. Talking about civil defense, I had an uncle in his town that he was a member of the civil defense group there. This was in the 60s and 70s. Probably the first time I was ever really aware of the term civil defense or even gave it a thought as to what civil defense did was when I saw George Bailey in A Wonderful Life working as a captain of the civil right. defense there in, in Frostbite Falls or wherever he was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's the civil defense. And it was pretty cool because Uncle Dale had a, a light that he could put on top of his car and he got a CB radio. And, <laughs> you know, he was right ready to defend. I remember he liked to used to scare people on the highway with that light, too. You yes. know? He, he wouldn't turn it on, but he just liked to get up behind you if you were moving too fast. Civil defense became recognized by the government in 1916 during World War I. One, and it was under the Council of National Defense. And one of their their big initiatives were the scrap metal and rubber drives, most uh, notably during World War II. Right, right. Also the Victory Gardens, which helped take the stress off of the U.S. food supply in time of war. Everybody growing a little something out in the backyard. They don't do civil defense anymore. It was replaced by emergency management and homeland security. Yeah, so that cool CD logo pushed up next to each other. We don't get to see that anymore. You see that all (laughs) over the place. Well, while Les is preaching about how people are so concerned about themselves and their day and and their petty interests and how they don't take time to think about the really important things, Herb is playing cards at his desk. You know, as Les went into that speech, I thought, there's a joke coming. I felt the wind up. There's just, it felt mm-hmm. like there's a joke coming. And sure enough. See what I'm getting at? <laughs> oh, sorry, Les, I wasn't listening. <laughs> And while Les is doing this, if you look at the teletype machine, you can see a message is sitting there already printed out. You can't really read it yet. I was looking at thinking, you know, to do that effect today, well, it'd be easy to just jam a printer in there. And when it's time for the message to print out, you hit print somewhere Mm -hmm. off stage. Well, it wasn't nearly that easy back at this time. So, yeah, they just leave it sitting there, hoping we don't notice it. And, you know... And I never did. No, if you're not watching it the way we watch it, you probably don't. It's at this time that we learn from Les that the stairwell door is locked because there have been some petty thievery going on. He's concerned. Les is like, this is a safety issue. He's upset about it. Do you get the idea that Les has appointed himself safety officer for the floor? Yeah, but that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I see him taking like a less thing to yeah, do. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, he keeps enlisting Herb to try and help him with this stuff, and Herb doesn't care. He's wanting to play solitaire. Yeah, yeah. So Les is all ready to run down and, and get on the building uh, supervisor about getting that fixed. Herb's not listening, so Les gets right behind Herb. He makes this horrible noise. <laughs> 
and cards go flying everywhere because Herb was not expecting that. It, it, it was a great little choreographed deal because he does that explosion and it looks like cause and effect. The explosion caused the cards to fly. It's like 52 card pickup. Yeah, definitely. Rita's art is coming in. Uh, I don't know how often Herb is sitting around playing solitaire there at the station, but he seemed to want to get those cards hidden when Art came in. He's scrambling yes. to get them off the floor. Poor timing. Yeah. Art tells us he's got a uh, big group of Japanese radio execs coming in to take a tour of the station today. More rubberneckers? Ah, come on, Herb. I'm expecting you guys to be on your best behavior. And Les is a little bit wary of this. Once again, Les transported right out of 1959. Japanese, eh? Les, the Japanese are our allies now. I mean, as news director, I can't expect you to pick up on little things like that. But it's okay. Herb's on top of things. I know how to handle these foreigners. Our maids are crowd. I love Herb's sensitivity. Herb is such the the modern man. Can you imagine being his maid? No, but I'm sure she can handle Herb, too. Uh, I I, hope so. I I have a vision of Herb's maid in my mind, and I think she can handle Herb. Well, Les leaves the the room. He's going down to talk to the building superintendent about the locked stairwell. If he gives you any trouble, let's punch him out. After Les leaves, the teletype machine starts going crazy, printing and bells ringing, ding, 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 ding. And and Herb thinks it's broken. What that is doing, it's called a 10-bell warning. It's, uh, it used to be a part of the emergency broadcast system. And you remember that two-tone thing that started out? That was the emergency broadcast system. They used to do that test every week. This is a test of the emergency broadcast yeah, system. I, I All, remember that. that? Well, there was the same thing for the teletype. They had a procedure and a protocol just like those tones that you would hear on the radio and the TV, they sent across 10 bells to indicate that something really bad was happening and to make you go, hmm, I wonder what bad thing is happening. Well, obviously, Herb didn't know this, so he ran over to unplug that machine. But and it was driving him crazy, yeah. so he just unplugged it. I have only been in a station two or three times when a 10-bell went off, and when a 10-bell goes off, it really makes the short hair stand up on the back of your neck. Those things went off like for... If- if a president got shot or if uh, there were enemy attacks or yeah, whatever, yeah, tornadoes. But, but regionally, it could be triggered for a tornado, and you would get a 10-bell for a tornado, and that's what's happening here. Well, growing up during the Cold War scare, we had to listen to those warnings on TV a lot. Oh, yeah, all the time. And and it became, you know, kind of fodder for jokes, but it really was a pretty cool system. It was actually designed so that nationally, the president of the United States could address the entire nation in under 10 minutes. They could take over every radio and TV station inside of 10 minutes and talk to the entire United States. So a pretty cool system. That is pretty cool. Yeah. When Herb unplugs it, you hear the audience go... Machine's worthless. They know that probably shouldn't have been done. And And then the camera zooms in. On that piece of paper that Les left sitting there before. So that's the one that is supposed to have been printed up, and they're just hoping you didn't notice it was sitting there. Well, there is a close-up, and it says, Tornado Warning, Cincinnati Area, Tornado Warning, all in caps. Yes, and having grown up in Illinois, uh, which is not the most tornadoes, but we get a lot of them, Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're not in the alley, 
but we're really close. We know the difference between a watch and a warning. I remember that's one of the first things I learned weather-wise as a little kid, like second or third grade. A watch means conditions are favorable. A warning means you hide. Take cover. There is a yes. tornado right now bearing down on you. That's what the warning means. So you don't mess with those. Well, after you see this printed out, then it goes to the show opening theme song. Cincinnati. Coming back, we're in the lobby, and Herb is sitting on Jennifer's desk doing his thing. Yeah, doing the Herb thing. Trying to talk her into going out with him and, and giving her, we'll go out. Wrong. It'll be nice. Wrong. We can leave right after work. Wrong. And I won't even touch him. Right. Yeah. He eventually gives up, like he usually does. Yeah. He stops. It's, a, it's just ping, ping, ping. Gotta try it. <laughs> and then Carlson comes in, and he's like, what time is it? It's so dark outside. Yeah, the, and the, we get a really different lighting texture through. Throughout this episode, it is a lot darker through the they, entire they episode. They kind of make it that uh, yellowish, dark yellowish color. Yeah, yeah, and it gives it a real, the whole thing has that feel all the way through the episode. But it's 9.35 in the morning, so Johnny on the air at that time, and the weather is acting really strange. Carlson's all excited. He has words of welcome written out on a piece of paper to welcome the Japanese guests, and he says, Andy, listen to this. We at WKRP are happy to extend our hands across the border to greet you. Herb, of course, can't believe Art wrote it. Very good. Andy points out we don't share a border with Japan. <laughs> right, they're on the other side of the world. Yeah, uh, and at the time, Japan was really becoming a rising industrial giant and a world force in the economy. So, you know, there was a lot of interest in Japan, Japanese gas, Japanese industry. Uh, so, you know, this was kind of a big deal to have these Japanese execs coming in to see the station. It would be nice if Art knew a little more about <laughs> About it. <laughs> well, he goes back into his office to, to kind of rework iron out the speech. And this is when the Japanese radio executives arrive. <laughs> and there's a gentleman with them who introduces himself <laughs> as Jose. How do, you, how do you say this, dear? I am Mr. Jose Jorge Rodriguez, the interpreter. Played by Rene Enriquez. Yes. And yes. why didn't they just let him keep his regular That's name? That's a pretty darn That's... good name right there. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, we get uh, Jennifer's middle name yes. here because uh, Mr. Rodriguez does introduce himself formally with all three names. And Jennifer reciprocates. Title. Yes, Jennifer reciprocates with the introduction. I'm Jennifer Elizabeth Marlowe, the receptionist. Andy <laughs> might as well not even be in the right, he room. He sticks out his hand to introduce himself yes. and is totally ignored because Jose has locked eyes with Jennifer. Yes, Jose is putting the moves on, and I would like to point out to Les that uh, the hair on top obviously has nothing to do with it. Jose is has got game with no hair on well, top. Well, but I think his accent has something that to do helps. with that. That does oh, accent and attitude. Lot. Accent and <laughs> <laughs> Does it now, dear? Ah, <laughs> uh, senorita. It is a great pleasure. Jose kisses her on the hand, and the Japanese men begin talking. They're obviously thinking, hmm, we like this guy, because he's making some time with Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> is Now, they start snapping there? Yes, so a few of them start taking pictures. Yeah. This has led Mr. Rodriguez to come to a conclusion. In my opinion, these people... I'm not Spanish. 
And WKRP is always so great to be a company that's about communication. They do so many great things with miscommunication. And this is another <laughs> one of those miscommunication things. If you think about it for two seconds, there is no way the Spanish interpreter makes it this far with the group of Japanese businessmen. It's just not happening. He would have said something right away. Oh, I don't yeah. think this is my group, you, you know. know. <laughs> Even though we're in the days before, you know, you can call the office at any time with a cell phone. I'm sure wherever he met this group, he really was going to find a phone and get this figured out before he started traipsing around the city with them. But it's just so funny. It The whole thing sets up the greatest interchanges. And some of the funniest stuff for me in the whole episode are these guys interacting. Watch this. Tu madre comes a cat. See, in my country, there would be a fist fight. I love it when he says there should have been a fist fight yeah. after I said this. <laughs> all, right. all right. Now, we were curious about what he actually said there. We didn't get any subtitles. Mm-hmm. So we consulted a local professor of Spanish at a college here in Jacksonville. She told us she listened to this several times. She definitely can hear Itu Madre, which is and your mother. But then what she says, she can only interpret as gibberish. He is not really saying anything there, although we can only imagine what he might have been saying that would have created a fight. Jennifer picks up the phone to call Mr. Carlson to let them know that the uh, executives are there. And the Japanese all start taking pictures of her. This is one of those stereotypical Japanese things is that Japanese are always taking pictures. That is a stereotype. And we were kind of talking about this. It's like they're not really necessarily taking pictures more than any other tourists. We snap constant pictures when we're on vacation. Uh, all the time. Yeah, it's no, it's nothing unusual. So I wondered why this stereotype was associated with the Japanese. So I kind of did a little looking around. And something that I found was at about the same time that personal cameras were becoming a thing, the point and click, carry around your neck, snap everything, the Japanese were having a strong surge in their economy and industry, and they started going on vacation a lot. So just at that time, when suddenly cameras were plentiful and everybody was using them, the Japanese were traveling all over the world and using cameras. So this became the association that the Japanese are always the ones taking pictures. That became the stereotype, and WKRP is having some fun with it. Andy tries talking to the visitors, and he does what so many people do. <laughs> he He speaks... In English, but it, he speaks louder and more slowly, as if that's going to help. It's the American way to translate English. It's very nice to have you here. Surely you'll <laughs> understand now. Carlson enters, and he begins to welcome them with his little speech. And Andy tells him, uh, nah, they don't speak English. <laughs> Yet Jorge goes ahead and translates into Spanish. Señores! Es un gran placer para el señor Carlson darle la bienvenida a esta humilde estación WKRP. Yes, he dramatically repeats in Spanish what Carlson has just said. And I love it. He's very... Oh, he's so expressive and emotive. very expressive. It might as well, like... If you were speaking Egyptian to me right now, I would have no clue what you're saying. There's just no idea. (laughs) Well, Carlson's wanting to know what's going on. Is that Japanese? No, it's Spanish. (laughs) And the interpreter explains. Somewhere in Cincinnati, a bunch of chiropractors from Ecuador are being taken around by Akira Yamaguchi. Although Art not the most worldly, uh, he did pick up on the fact that that was not (laughs) Japanese the interpreter was speaking. Well, Andy thinks they need to postpone the tour, but Carlson says, oh, wait, wait, wait. 
I learned some Japanese when I was in the Marines. The accent may be off, but... Teowage! Uh, <clears throat> Kasson! Obviously, he had the right inflection on those words. It worked. Carlson speaks to the group, and their hands go straight yes, up in the air. shoot right up. It reminded me of my father, who was an MP during the occupation in uh, Austria after World War II, and he learned some German while he was there. The only thing he learned was, out you drunks, out of the bar now. That was the thing that he repeated every night as an MP. So, you know, you learn specific phrases that are going to work for you in your job, and that's what Art has done here. Arthur's trying to communicate with them, and he ends his little welcome speech to welcome to... Cincinnati, Ohio. Ohio! means hello in Japanese. Ohio is really, it's kind of a catch-all term. For it's kind a, of the aloha of yeah. Japanese. Aloha How you doing? Has, yeah, uh, it's, it's what's happening? Welcome hello, and goodbye welcome. and hello, goodbye. And it, and it applies a lot of times during the day. So yes, Ohio struck a chord with the Japanese visitors. And they all begin bowing and saying Ohio back. Yes, and uh, Jose, he not being a Japanese translator, though, he gets it figured out. I'm no expert, of course, but I think hello in Japanese is Ohio. Now, we should mention the gentleman playing Jose, who is just hilarious. You oh, he's most, great. Oh, he is. You, if you were a fan of Hill Street Blues at all, you probably recognize him as Ray Calitano. He was on Hill Street Blues for six years, from 81 to 87. His name is Rene Enriquez. I don't know if I mentioned that at the top. He was born in Granada, Nicaragua. Unfortunately, we have had so many, uh, just a spate recently here, of guest stars, uh, guests on WKRP, who have have died young, and uh, Rene is one of those. He died in 1990 of lung cancer at the age of 56. That was a pretty funny scene. I loved that scene. Oh, yeah, and it, it just cracks me up. And, and you look at it and you think, is this racist? I don't know. I don't think so. It's kind of playing on a stereotype. It's not mean. It's not being, you know, in, in, in any way derogatory. Right. It's just kind of having some fun, and I just thought it was hilarious. It was. These people... I'm not Spanish. So they go into the studio, and there's Johnny lying back in his chair listening to the music, which is Elvis Costello, Goon Squad. Good morning, Steamer. Hi, I see everything's in order. This is a group of uh, executives taking a tour of our radio station. Yeah, and this is on Elvis's Armed Forces album, which was a pretty big one for him. And this album came out one month before the airing of this episode. This episode's uh, air date was February fifth. Fresh, fresh tunes coming at you. Uh, yeah, and goons and uh, the Armed Forces album came out on January fifth of nineteen seventy nine. So brand new, getting it on the playlist at WKRP. Carlson enters with the Japanese tour group, and he gets over in front of Johnny and puts his hands behind <laughs> his back. And he backs up to Johnny and is hitting him on top of the head. Trying with to his wake hand him up just in case. Just you, to get him going. Well, hey. you remember uh, in, during Turkey's Away, Art came in and Johnny is totally cashed out listening to Pink Floyd's <laughs> dog. He even waved his hand in front of Johnny's face and Johnny didn't respond. So he's worried every time he comes in the control room <laughs> to make sure Fever's awake. So that's what he's doing with his hand there, smacking him on the head. Carlson explains to the group that this is a disc jockey. Yes, and the Japanese response is hilarious 
once they figure out what the art has actually said. Disc jockey. They've obviously been informed about the American disc jockey, and it's not a healthy situation. Johnny is is not that good of an example. No, he's well, he might be typifying the American disc jockey, and that's why they pull the masks they out. They all pull their masks yeah. out, put them on, and Carlson says, okay, let's go on. Let's move out of the studio. Get them out of here. But two of the Japanese men stay back, and speaking in Japanese, uh, and and it's captioned, they say, this station is a mess, and the other guy, no kidding. And then Johnny waves to them, and he's trying to be, you know, culturally appropriate, so he says... And when they wave back to him, they answer in Japanese. The man says, get well soon. <laughs> He's a disc jockey. He's got to be ill. <laughs> He's got to be sick. And and Johnny's like, uh, yeah, same here. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, now these, these two guys that spoke, and in true WKRP tradition, out of the seven Japanese executives that are in the group, only two of them <laughs> spoke, so only two of them get their names in the credits. We had Bill Sato and David Chow. And Bill, good solid Japanese uh, gentleman born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, in 1936. Bill did a Japanese uh, accent, no problem at all. He's known for his work on Matchstick Men with Nicolas Cage. He was also in Big Trouble in Little China with Kurt Russell. That's a fun one. Uh, And Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. So Bill doing quite a few of the big movies. And the other one uh, playing the Japanese executive, he was born in Toronto, Canada. He's known for work on Conquest of Planet of the Apes and Dimension 5 and Kung Fu. And that is David Chow as our other named oh, sorry, executive. I didn't say that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you happen to know any of the other gentlemen in the group, we would love to give them their due. But as it is right now, we're not sure who they are. They didn't speak? Nope. <laughs> Carlson gathers them all in the hall, gets them out of the studio, and they're getting ready to head on down the hallway. And it's still very dark uh, yes. all over the place. And Art takes them to the window and, well, he identifies the hall. One of the man looks out the window and is pointing and speaking very excitedly. What, huh? well, you wait, 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 let me take a look. Probably thinks he spots a photo, Matt. <laughs> Which, again, is playing off this stereotype of the cameras. Gotta have the photo, Matt. And if photo, Matt, is a foreign word to you, um, I remember photomats. You remember photomats? Yes, I never lots? went to one. Well, now, around here, I think we more often had, it was called a Fox photo, but it was the same format, basically, as a photomat. It's a little tiny building out in a parking lot in a shopping center, and you could drive up to it and hand off your film, and in an hour go back and get your pictures, because this is back in the days where you had to actually get film developed. Yes, the first one opened in 1965. They looked almost like a a very tiny pizza hut, is what they always (laughs) reminded me of. They just looked like a little tiny pizza hut out in the middle of the parking lot. So Carlson looks out and he says, oh, well, that's a tornado. A tornado? (laughs) And then we get a WKRP special effect. We get a cut to a tornado. And they could have they could have done without that. We did helicopters and turkeys away without having to have a shot of a helicopter. I think we could have done the tornado without yes. having a shot of a they tornado. They had the sound effect. That was oh, fun. And it was working. And Art's response to it was working. And, you know, I, I think that's great. But uh, they cut to an exterior shot of a tornado. So it was we pretty that. bad. Yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> All right, so once Art realizes what's going on, we cut back to the bullpen. Herb, uh, having unplugged the uh, teletype machine and just not aware of anything going on, is just (laughs) playing with his deck of cards. Yes, and the lights are kind of flashing off and on. We got in close enough on Herb's desk 
that we were able to see that yellow book that is sitting on top of a stack of books actually there on his desk. But I was able to get a look at the title of it. And this is Secrets of Closing Sales, which was a very popular sales book in the 1970s. It was written by Charles B. Roth. It was first published in 1970, but it went through several editions. I've seen up to, I think, eight editions of this book. So a very popular sales book in the 70s. And Herb obviously got it as far as his desk. He's I wanting don't... to improve his uh, his sales, maybe? Pitches? I, I don't, don't know. know if he's opened it yet. He got it to his desk. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not sure if he's gone through it. Andy and Jennifer come running in and they're going to a filing cabinet and they're looking through frantically and Herb says, hey, Andy. Something's wrong with the lights. They just flickered. They're looking for the disaster file, which concerns me that it would be there. The disaster file should be in the control room. That's where you're going to find it, and that's where it That's would where set. you need to make the announcement. Yeah, and... that's where you're making the announcement. So the disaster file sits in the control room. You wouldn't stick it back uh, in, in the bullpen, but they obviously are not keeping things updated in the control room. Herb obviously has no idea what's going on. What's the matter? Trouble with the Japanese? So when Les comes in, he looks pretty disheveled. He's got his tie untied, which we figured out. That is actually a bow tie untied. Not a clip-on. Not a clip-on, which we had seen the clip-on in Date with Jennifer, and you even mentioned you thought Les would know how to tie a tie. Well, he obviously does. does. But his bow tie has come untied, his shirt's untucked, and he looks very disheveled, and he says that the elevator is stuck under their floor. He had to climb out. He doesn't know what's going on, so Andy tells him there's a tornado, and Andy knows this just by looking out the window. They've been monitoring these out the window. Herb screams when he hears this, and he he says they're all going to die, and he dives under Bailey's desk. We had a little false sense of Herb's bravery there. It's just because Herb didn't know what was going on as a reason and Herb was so brave. Once he knew what was happening, that's when he goes diving for the desk. And I love the fact that Bailey's desk has a little sticker of a rainbow on it, and that's what Herb is behind. Les tells Andy that if there was a tornado, he would know about it because he's the news guy, and the bell on his teletype machine would have gone off to warn him of these important things. Well, and that's when Les gets over by the machine and starts pounding on it to try and get it working again, which I looked at that and I thought... Well, you don't smack electronics anymore, do you? You used to bang on the TV. If the tubes were loose, you could get a short (laughs) working again. That's just not a thing anymore. But he starts banging on his teletype machine. Who unplugged my machine? We don't know! Les goes over and he begins kicking the desk where Herb's hiding. Herb's underneath it. And he's like, come on out here. And he's got his fists clenched. He's, he's, he's ready to go. He's put up his dukes. He is ready for some fisticuffs. <laughs> Where Andy keeps saying, where's the file? Where's the disaster file? Try apocalypse. A for apocalypse. The <laughs> end is coming. Well, Andy tells us he wants him to go on the air, but Les is not done messing with Herb. No, he's all mad. He says, why do I need to go on the air? It's all over now. So then he comes around. And and, it's Herb's fault. Oh, he does the funniest little thing. So Herb is sitting under this desk with his legs sticking out the front of the desk. So Les goes around and kicks that front right there. Really hard. Really hard. And Herb, you know, has got his, we can't see them, but he's got that deck of cards in his hand and he drops them and they just come spilling out from under the desk. It was a pretty (laughs) funny visual. I got a kick out of it. I'm going to want you to go on the air. What for, Andy? It's all over now. Carlson enters, and he says they can't get off the floor. Remember, the stairwell door is locked. 
Now the elevator stuck a floor below, so they are uh, stuck on uh, the floor. They can't get off of that floor. How did we know that all of these factors were going to combine to trap them there? They are stuck. And Andy decides, okay, get everybody to the lobby. It's the safest place. So Art grabs Herb and drag. Well, actually, he hears. Who's freaking out? He hears Herb shout. We're all gonna die. Who said that? Herb. <laughs> and that's when he realizes Herb is under the yes. desk. So he pulls him out from under the desk, stands him up, starts telling him, we've got to get to the lobby. What are you going to do? Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. He says it multiple times, and I was just thinking, let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. (laughs) That's what it reminded me of. It made you want popcorn, I did. Let's all go to the lobby. So Carlson is telling Herb to pull himself together to the point where he hauls off and smacks him right across the face. Pull yourself together, Herb! Hey! It shocks Herb. It works. And uh, <laughs> as they're walking out into the hallway, I hear Art say he saw that in a war movie once. <laughs> so that's how he got Herb snapped back into, into place. Right after they leave, Johnny enters the bullpen and he says that, that he's leaving. And Johnny looks really agitated. He comes in mm-hmm. and his body language says he is just not happy. He's never this stressed. No, never. He is jerky and jumpy and he's he's moving kind of quickly back and forth and he's talking uh, hey, I'm going to go more. home. I'm done. Yeah, I... yeah. It's, uh, it's like my, my... And he says... I have to go home now. Uh, <laughs> my shift's almost over and I want to water my plants. My shift is almost over. You don't leave. I put on a long record. Well, he didn't, he, said. he didn't say it until Andy grabbed him and kind of shook him and, and he said, I put on a long record, man. I put on a long record. <laughs> you really can't leave before your shift is over. That's not a good uh, idea. But Johnny has had some run-ins with tornadoes before we find out. We were in a mobile home and I, I think God must really hate mobile homes, Andy, because <laughs> tornadoes always attack them first. <laughs> They get very mobile. <laughs> and and Johnny gets very personal here. He is. Shares He's, some personal information. He, when you get in the really intense situation, that's where all the truth comes out. And having the tornado swirling around him is starting to get Johnny uh, to telling telling a lot of stuff. And Johnny mentions a Ronco Vegematic. Yeah, didn't he say, what did he say, his second wife? My second wife tried to kill me with a Ronco Vegematic. <laughs> yeah, very busy people. So you cannot hang something like a Ronco Vegematic out there and have me not go, hey, let's look that up. <laughs> so we, we jumped did. on it, because I know all about Ron Popeil. Ron is the man who created Ronco Corp in 1958. He is the guy guy who came up with those 90-second sell-you-crap with an 800-number commercials. Smokeless ashtray by Ronco. The Ronco Steam Away. Get a Ronco Tidy Dryer. Introducing Popeil's amazing Vegematic 2. Introducing Auto Cup by Ronco. Introducing the Rhinestone and Stud Center. It changes everyday clothing into exciting fashions. Ronco Roller Measure. Introducing the Ronco Salad Spinner. And he was the master of it. Remember the Pocket Fisherman? That was really his first big hit, was the Pocket Fisherman. Those commercials were hilarious. I love the executive pulling the the pocket fisherman out of his briefcase to go fishing. <laughs> you never the, know. The pocket well, fisherman you might need that. Yeah, it was this little plastic fold-up fishing rod that actually had a release button on it, and you could fish with it, kind of. And my grandpa had one. Did he really? Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Ron worked. What Ron did worked. He sold stuff and he sold it in truckloads. The Miracle Broom, the Glass Froster, Mr. Dentist, the Plaque Attacker. And my favorite, the Sit On Trash, trash compactor. compactor. Just sit on it. Compacts two to three days' trash for a family of three into a single plastic bag. It was actually like a little stool that you could have in your. It could double as a stool. So and put every your trash time you sit on it. Every time the kids come in the kitchen to talk to mom, honey, sit on the trash compactor right there, would you? And the Ronco Vegematic. Yes. It slices. It dices. dices it makes Julian fries. <laughs> and everybody the world over said, "What the heck are Julian fries?" It didn't matter. Everybody wanted to be able to make them after they saw those Vegematic commercials. And the original model of the Vegematic is in the Smithsonian Museum. And you know what Ron Popeil gave to the zeitgeist, contributed to the world, the phrases, set it and forget it, and one of my all-time favorites, (laughs) Ron coined the phrase, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Love, Ron Popeil. But wait! Andy tells Johnny to go to the lobby, and Johnny starts to run out the door, and he he <laughs> sees Jennifer, and he says, "Not, not Jennifer. I'm really not." That. He's trying to act cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not. I'm that... really not that upset. No, I'm not that afraid. I'm okay. I'm good. And and, and he then he takes off out the door. He puts on the calm act for like three seconds while he's making <laughs> eye contact with Jennifer, and then he turns to the door and is scrambling and. The walls move. The walls move. Johnny, the other way. He turns the wrong way. Yeah, takes a wrong turn going out the front door. Smacks into the wall. All right, so Andy is wanting Les to go on the air. Les has decided all the fun is done because the tornado's gone and he was stuck in the elevator while it was happening. Oh, he was pouting. Just really throwing a fit. Uh, But Andy, by stating what could be the worst situation possible, a cluster of tornadoes, that gets less happy. Andy sends uh, Jennifer out to make sure Johnny gets to the lobby. So the only two left in the bullpen are Les and Andy. I'm worried about Johnny wandering around the station. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be freaking out everywhere. We hear this horrible loud noise from outside and Les gets excited. Yeah, He's like a little kid. Oh, it's like the tornado's back and it's fun time again for Les. It sounds like a train. Maybe it's another twister. Get out of your desk, Les. No, Les, don't do that. No, Les. Oh, hot dog. Where did this come from? Andy grabs him, pulls him away from the window, and then Andy is now in the path of destruction coming through the window, and we get one of those phenomenal WKRP special (laughs) effects. You hear wind and tornado sounds. And, and glass breaking. Glass breaking, but we slowed that down. There really was no glass breaking. What happened is they shot a puff of black smoke through the window, and then some shredded up paper comes flying through there. Yes. And then we hear a glass shattering sound effect, but no real glass but in is my shattered. head, I saw it. Yeah, and then my favorite part of this whole thing, it hasn't gotten old, even going back to Star Trek. When you've got something hitting the ship, you shake the camera. <laughs> That's how you make everybody get shook up is by moving the camera. And they do that as Andy falls on the desk. The oh, cameraman is shaking the camera back and forth. And it's hilarious. After, a little bit after yes. the window, supposedly. Yes, it's right. after the window has blown out. We get the camera shake and then we fade to black. 
come back to the bullpen and Les is checking on Andy. He's passed out and Les is worried about him. And then Carlson, Herb, and Jennifer enter. Andy has been hit, obviously, by flying debris. And we have the red makeup on his face to prove it. And you see some cuts and things yeah. on his face. Yeah, just lines of red. You know, not anything real gross. Herb and Les and Mr. Carlson decide we got to get Andy away from the window. Let's yes. move him. <laughs> and they pick him up. And he's and limp like a rag doll. A, it's another one of these great visual gags. I just love it when they do these. And he, or I know Hugh Wilson used to hate it when they made him do all these big visual gags. But, but they work. He's so good at them. And they are yes. so funny because they're smart and you're not ready for them. They pick him up, move him to Herb's desk, plop him down. And then Jennifer quite rightly says... You are not supposed to move an injured person. They all agree and they go, oh, oh, oh. You shouldn't move him. That's so right. we better so they, move him back. They pick him up and put him back on Bailey's desk where reverse the thing we did before right didn't it Carlson says okay does anybody know first aid and Herb's taking off his jacket yes yes I had an advanced and course still he knows what exactly needs to be done uh, Herb steps up and says what do we need done yeah, here what's you the know problem? what's the problem <laughs> Carlson's like what's the problem <laughs> And then Jennifer jumps in here and says she knows what to do. Right. Herb is not going to do mouth to mouth with another guy. Yeah, well, that's Herb, you know. So, But then right. he's kind of surprised that Jennifer knows mouth to mouth. And uh, Jennifer, of course, cannot resist a chance to needle Herb. You know mouth to mouth? I know all sorts of things. <laughs> Jennifer seems to know what she's doing. She gets in there, starts on the mouth-to-mouth with Andy, and Herb is hilariously freaking out in this very contained way. He can't be too overtly jealous because she's helping Andy, but you can see Herb freaking out. He is well, not saying, liking this at all. Him? Why couldn't that be me? Yeah, but he's just really staying contained, but oh, it's hurting him bad. Then you see Andy's arm come up yes, as Andy must Jennifer's be okay. giving him out to His arm comes up and goes around her neck, and yep, he's fine. Yeah. <laughs> And he's going to be all right. Before they set him up, uh, Art leans down to ask if he's okay. And we are led to believe that Andy has whispered something in Art's ear. What do you say? Don't stop. So what Jennifer is doing here, we know as CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It's had different names over the years, but actually it dates back as far as the 18th. 18th century, they were using it primarily at that time for drowning victims. They didn't realize it could help in other uh, situations where breathing was impaired. This goes back to 1740, where they first started the process of mouth-to-mouth. They didn't do the cardiopulmonary part. Yeah, the, the com- chest compressions and that, that kind of thing. Later. They, they just got the breathing down. Mouth-to-mouth is one of the initial techniques that a first responder will use to help someone who's no longer breathing. It wasn't until 1891 that the the idea of chest compressions was added into the mix when a German surgeon realized that compressing the chest could actually keep the heart beating. And if anybody has taken any of those classes, you know that the best way to do it correctly and get the beats per minute, you sing the song Staying Alive in your head. And they're trying to get you around 100 to 120 beats per minute. And if you're getting down with the Bee Gees, that's about where you're going to be. Well, you can There 
were some naysayers that said, oh, mouth to mouth, that doesn't work. You, you're putting your used up air into them. Yeah, because when you inhale, your body is pulling the oxygen out of the air you've inhaled. So they're saying that the air that you're exhaling is no good. Why would you put that in it's another carbon person? carbon dioxide. You shouldn't put that in another person. Well, in 1954, a researcher, James Elam, proved that expired air was sufficient to maintain adequate oxygenation. And then it was in 1956 that Peter Safer and Elam came up with the whole idea of CPR and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And it was in, in 1957, uh, if you want to give something credibility, give it to the government. The U.S. military adopted it as a way to revive unresponsive cardiac emergency victims. So it was working for the government, and they decided, hey, everybody ought to know how to do this. They came up with a mannequin called Recessi Annie. And you've probably run into Recessi Annie. She is still out there working all the time for the American Red Cross. She was born the same year I was, yeah, 1960. 1960. And in 1972, an American physician, Leonard Cobb, led Medic 2, which was the world's first mass citizen training in CPR, and it was in Seattle. And since then, it's become very pervasive, and obviously, Jennifer Elizabeth Marlowe took a class there in Cincinnati. Yeah, did you ever take a CPR class? Oh, yeah, I've taken several of them. Actually, I worked on uh, Boy Scout camp staff every summer. We had to take a full class. They would not let us do the refresher. We took the full four-hour class every summer. I have uh, kissed Recessa Annie way too many times. <laughs> yes, and I've taken many classes. And we had a preemie. Our daughter was a preemie. And before we could bring her home, we had to pass the little preemie. Had to do a, yeah, had to do a refresher on the preemie side of it. Because you don't do them the same way you do a no. regular adult person. So they get Andy sitting up now on the desk. He is really limp. He looks like a rag doll. It's pretty funny when they when <laughs> yes. they set him up. Especially and, with his face red. Yes, <laughs> yes. And he's got this dazed look in his eyes. It's great. And uh, he starts saying, There's no place like home. Which, of course, you know, Dorothy was saying that in The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. Oh, that's the other tornado yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. There's Twister and The Wizard of Oz. Those are your two <laughs> big tornado movies. The Wizard of Oz was in 1939. I loved The Wizard oh, of Oz. Oh, yeah. It would come on like once a year, and that was a big family Every spring, TV night. Every spring around Easter would usually <laughs> around be... Around tornado time. <laughs> it was during tornado season, yeah. Every spring would be The Wizard of Oz, and I think CBS ran it. It was usually on a Sunday night because I watched it every single year. You had to see The Wizard of Oz. It was nominated for Best Picture, but it lost to Gone with the Wind. Yes, and as many people know, it starts out in black and white and then it changes to color. But in the Stair household, when I was seven and eight years old, we didn't have a color TV, so I never knew that. I watched all of The Wizard of Oz <laughs> in black and white. You poor thing. Yeah, yeah. Then 1976, Mom twisted Dad's arm, wanted to see the Bicentennial fireworks in color, and we got a color TV. So from then on, I saw The Wizard of Oz in color. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her little dog Toto are in a tornado that picks up her home and takes it out of Kansas to the land of Oz. And Kansas, the number one state for tornadoes in the U.S. So that's the reason they said it there. I'll get you a pretty and your little dog, too. Suddenly, Carlson takes charge. I mean, he jumps in there like a bulldog. He tells Les to get the emergency file, get on the air. Yeah, something seemed to come alive in art. And, you know, he mentioned 
Marine training, right? He told yes. us that he was a Marine. I think a little bit of that is seeping into his uh, take charge attitude here. So he tells Les, right now, get on the air. And Les is like, yes, sir. And he salutes Carlson as he runs out of the room. Art tells Jennifer to uh, stay there and take care of Andy because... I'm going to the bridge. He's on a ship somewhere. He uh, salutes and clicks his heels. Yeah, and Herb looks at him and... Bridge. The booth. Now we're left with Andy still on the desk, Jennifer tending to him, Florence Nightingale by the desk, and then Herb standing there. And Jennifer decides she wants to make sure Andy's good on the breathing thing. So she starts mouth to mouth yeah, again, which and, uh, Herb's not thrilled with. I think the big guy said he was fine. I, th- I think he's okay now. <laughs> Andy's arm comes back up around and Herb's grabbing and pulling it off of Jennifer. <laughs> Big guy said he's fine. Big guy said he's fine. He's pulling the arm off. Carlson, when he left, he went into the studio. Yeah, in our perspective on the bullpen, when you go left, there's a door there that I think is access into the studio. That's what we're thinking. Yeah, because yes. we saw Les come in from there uh, after on, after on date with Jennifer. Yeah, after his cast on date with Jennifer. So we think that door connects right into the uh, control room. So that's where Art's heading. Les is in there trying to put on a record. Now, Les should not be trying to cue up a record. He's not a disc jockey. You don't cue a record that isn't spinning. That's not a good idea. You can't figure out where you are anyway, and you're going to wind up scratching the record. But Les doesn't know yeah, Les, he's the Les news guy. Know. So you get that awful sound when he's trying to cue that. Carlson enters and wants to know why they aren't on the air, and Les has to explain that the plan that he's got is what to do when the Russians or Chinese attack. And you remember, Les was trying to tell Art there's a problem with this plan, and Art told him to get in there and get on the air with it. Well, now... Art's, Art's got another fix. He's got a solution. Art here. is Mr. Johnny on the spot during this emergency, and he tells Les... Take that emergency file and you get on the air. Then when you see the word Russians, you substitute the word tornado. Ooh, he, he likes that idea. He thinks it's great. Yeah, so Les gets in there and he starts his report. The city of Cincinnati has just been attacked by the godless tornadoes. <laughs> Citizens are advised to arm themselves immediately. The godless tornadoes. <laughs> Carlson grabs the mic from Les, and he begins giving instructions that are really useful. He's very calm, very yes. in control. I mean, this is Art under pressure is really a pretty impressive guy. As Art's talking, Les picks up the red phone, and, and you see him checking to make sure it's still working. And this is back in the days when trees going down or a tornado could knock out phone service. If the phone lines went down, you would have a dead phone and could not no contact way to communicate, anyone. Right. Les takes the mic back from him and he begins reading his plan. You know, Les is kind of into this now that Art has figured out a way for him to incorporate his civil defense plan that he was working so hard on into this tornado emergency. Les is into it. Les gives the number that people should call if they see a tornado. An enemy tornado. An enemy tornado. Those godless enemy tornadoes <laughs> to let us know their movements. And as Carlson's trying to get the mic away from him again, the light on the board starts lighting There's, up. Yeah, they've got a phone strobe on the board, which is a pretty common thing. You can't have a phone ringing in the control room, and the phone could go off at any time. It goes off while you're on the air. So you've got a strobe that will go off in front of you, letting you know that the phone is ringing. So that's what Les saw up on the and board. And he tells Carlson, get the phone, get the phone. And he Les begins giving a list of hospitals in the area. Yeah, he mentioned uh, Christ Hospital in Mount Auburn, and they kind of dropped this behind Art. 
Uh, but you can hear some of these Good Samaritan Hospital near the UC campus, uh, Cincinnati General Hospital, which is on UC's uh, campus. And our man, Chesie D., our man in Cincy, gave us a rundown on these. He said that these still exist, uh, although Cincinnati General has been renamed UC Hospital. They're all within walking distance of each other in an area just north of downtown near UC, which is affectionately known as Pill Hill, due to all the hospitals, medical centers, and research institutes. All right. So thank you, Chesie D. Yeah. on Man and Cincy. The person on the phone is telling Carlson about a tornado sighting, and Carlson writes the information down for Les because Les is talking on the mic. And when Les gets this information, it sounds like we've got a winner. Yes, all right. All right, we have a sighting. There's a tornado in the Hamilton area. All right, so they've got a sighting in Hamilton. It sounds like they've got an outbreak all over the place because Hamilton, it's a ways. It's about 40 minutes north of Cincinnati, so they've got a cluster happening all around there. Less is giddy. Now here are some helpful tips on how to care for the injured or in shock. It is so hard for him to suppress a smile. He is trying not to smile, but Les <laughs> is in his element. He could not be happier. The phone rings again, Carlson answers it, and it turns out to be a seven-year-old girl who's home alone. Art does a great job getting in there trying to calm her down. He's so believable and so calming and a great presence on the phone. And he gets the girl to go to the basement. He hears her walking away. He hears the door slam and he's all excited because, okay, she's in the basement, she's safe, and then the phone goes dead. Yeah, yeah. So something hit, but hopefully he got her to safety. Uh, and kind of a fun little fact about Gordon Jump. Uh, this is not just him acting. He has quite a bit of experience with both kids and weather early in his career uh, on WLWD in Dayton, Ohio in 1961. He hosted a kid's show called Gordon Jumps Fun Time. Yes, and this was a, a popular show for younger children. And then at WIBW in Topeka, Kansas, where I'm quite certain he probably reported on some tornadoes, he was both Wib. The Clown on WIBW and the weatherman for the station. <laughs> he said, actually, he said there were times where he was running down the hallway, wiping the white makeup off of his face and putting on a jacket so he could go in and do the weather. It was that much of an operation that he was involved in everything. Art has that experience with weather and with kids. Les is in awe, and he tells Mr. Carlson how... He just saved the little girl's life, and he gives him this big hug. And it, you know what I realized as he was doing that? Art stood up from being on the call. The mic's still open. All of that's going on the air as Les is hugging him and telling him what a great job he did. That's all going out over the air. <laughs> and then Carlson says, hey, get back on the mic. This is Les Nesman again, part of your gutsy WKRP emergency news team. <laughs> now I'm going to see the phones in here light up. I want to see this city get up off the canvas and start fighting back the way only Cincinnati can. We're not going to let those godless aggressors from the, I mean, those tornadoes get the best of us, are we? Heck no, boy. Not with men like Arthur, big guy Carlson on our side. That record he was queuing up when we first started the scene. Uh, it's time to play that and Les puts on the national anthem. <laughs> Now we're checking in out in the lobby. Uh, Johnny has taken up a spot under a desk. Now, whose desk is that? Is that Jennifer's desk? Where'd they, where'd they get that desk? I don't know where. I don't 
think it's like up against the wall. Yeah. Did I don't they, think it's Jennifer's because hers isn't from? against the wall. I don't know. Well, they found a desk and Johnny is under it. and uh, Along jo- with the interpreter. And a hip flask, which Johnny has come up with from somewhere. He's obviously put a few slugs down out of that hip flask because he's a little happy. They're enjoying themselves and he tells the interpreter. Listen, translate that, Jose. They'll love it. Yeah, uh, we once again consulted with Professor Merrick from the Spanish department here at a local college, uh, and she said that she listened several times to what Jose said, and what he says there is, Y la dijo a la tercera esposa, and pardon my pronunciation, but she is reading that as, and he told his third wife. So the start of a statement, and then whatever... That Johnny is making. That, yeah, Johnny is saying, you know, translate that. So this is what Johnny has said. And he told his third wife, and then the rest of it is covered up by the laugh track. So what is probably the off-color joke is covered up. The Japanese gentlemen obviously do not understand. They are missing the joke in two languages. They yes. heard it in English and in Spanish, yes. and it's not They're all registering with either one. They're on the one. floor because of the tornado, and they're no expression. Well, you guys show up here today, and you, you listen to all my problems. <laughs> so, uh, God bless every one of you, and I hope that you sell a billion TV sets. <laughs> Jennifer enters, and she's leading a shaken Andy beside her, holding on to his arm. Listen, has anybody seen my little dog? Oh, it's keeping that Wizard of Oz thing going. Yes, there, you know. a reference back to that. Carlson comes in and says, oh, it's over, and no one was killed. Because when tornadoes come, they they arrive quickly. And then they're gone. They can be horrible devastation for like 10 minutes. And then they disappear and you've got sunny skies. So it's all over and everybody seems to be fine. Johnny's happy to hear that it's over. And with slurred, drunken speech, he says he's got to go on the air. He's ready. He's not afraid. And he obviously doesn't know where he is because he pops (laughs) up and goes right through Carlson's office door. The booth is gone. Got a little capper scene in the lobby. It's obviously the end of the same day. And Herb, after witnessing uh, the mouth to mouth that Andy got, thought maybe he could cash in on this. So he's lying on Jennifer's desk. His tie is loosened a little bit and he's moaning. <laughs> and he hears her walk in and he starts to moan. He's obviously in, in distress. He needs help. He's lying with, with his left arm up by his head. Head, and she walks up to the desk and raises the arm that's lying across some papers. She picks it up even a little higher and then lets the arm go. <laughs> oh, she definitely makes her point. She walks back out of the <laughs> lobby. Herb just raises straight up, no expression, no reaction, straightens his tie, picks up his jacket, and he's out the door. <laughs> <laughs> he had to give it a shot. So, And that's the end of the episode. Yes, we are all done with the tornadoes. Now, this episode did probably have a little bit of inspiration. In 1974, 
uh, April 3rd and 4th, there was a very deadly tornado outbreak across the Midwest. Uh, but, you know, tornadoes in a season, not uncommon at all. Actually, in 1978, there were 22 tornadoes in Cincinnati, uh, 14 injuries, no deaths occurred. Uh, and in 1978, in June, there was a tornado that happened in the morning. I was curious as to what tornadoes were like in the states surrounding Cincinnati. And so we looked at 1978, what was happening. This episode came out in February of 1979. So I went back to 78 to see. And there were five tornadoes in Kentucky, 17 injured, no deaths. Three in West Virginia with one injury, no deaths that year. In Pennsylvania, there were 18 tornadoes, one death. 31 injured. In Illinois, our home state, we had 16. We get quite a few around here. 16 and 78. That year we had four folks injured and one killed by the tornadoes in Illinois. And the states with the most tornadoes, I thought it was uh, Kansas, but it's Texas, an average of 155 tornadoes. Kansas has an average of 96. The deadliest tornado in history we found out was called the Tri-State Tornado. And it was March 18th of 1925, where 695 people were killed. All right. So we're done with tornadoes. Uh, fun, but yeah, a little bit of serious uh, in there. A fun episode of WKRP. So what is up for next week? We will be watching Goodbye, Johnny. Johnny gets a job offer, and he has a chance to return to the Los Angeles radio market. The staff of WKRP try to trick Fever into staying by showing how much they mean to him. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!